me to Genesis chapter 44, and the first thing I'm going to do is read the second half of that chapter. Luke read the first part, and we're going to pick up at verse 18, and here we see uh, Judah stepping forward to speak in defense of his brother Benjamin. So Genesis 44, verse 18, we read, Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is God's word. Well, in the 1984 edition of the NIV Bible, 1 John 2.1 is rendered like this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In the ESV and the King James Version, we read the word advocate. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is an attempt to translate a very dense Greek word, parakletos. But I really love what the sense of the 1984 NIV translation brings out. In Jesus, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. We have a mediator. As we sang earlier before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. In our passage this evening, we see 
one of Jacob's sons, Judah, step forward and speak in defense of his condemned brother, Benjamin. It's a gripping narrative. But in seeing Judah stepping forward to defend his condemned brother, Benjamin, we see a beautiful, beautiful Old Testament outline of the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. In John 5.39, Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders who rejected him, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus tells us that the Old Testament scriptures bear witness about him. They all point to him. They give, if you will, outlines of Jesus that are colored in more fully in the New Testament. And this passage, Genesis 44, is designed to help us understand our need for a mediator so that we can experience shalom, peace with God, and salvation. But more than just help us understand our need for a mediator, this passage, I believe, is designed to help stir up our appreciation for and our love for Jesus. I remember when I worked in Ulster Bank, there was a day, I'll never forget it, where 20,000 pounds went missing in the bank and it was traced back to my computer. It was supposed to be in my safe. And I'm telling you, my color drained when everyone gathered around my station with some accusing looks flying around those close to me knew that I did not steal the money. And in the bank, whenever it's 4.30 and they close the doors and you want to get out, no one can go in that circumstance. You have to all wait until the money's found. Now, in the end, it ended up being just a computing error. I had transferred 20,000 to my computer and it never sort of physically made it from the safe to where it was supposed to be. Thankfully, it was all put right and we got out in decent enough time. But see when some of my colleagues stood up in my defense straight away and said, we know Steve hasn't done it. There must be something we can find. I appreciated so much them speaking up in my defense. And I think that's what this passage is here to do when we recognize that we don't just have a Judah like Benjamin had who speaks in his defense. We have a Jesus who speaks in our defense. It's to make us appreciate the mediating work of Jesus all the more. Now, as we come to the passage, I mentioned last time that if I could give this section of Genesis on the life of Joseph a title, it would be the title, Grand Designs. For in all the ups and downs of Joseph's life and the ups and downs that his family experienced, God was steadily working out his grand design to restore shalom, peace to this broken family, to heal their relationships, and he was working to bring salvation to this blessed family from the famine that was upon them. Last time we left off at the end of chapter 43 with Joseph setting up a kind of test for his brothers to see what kind of men they had become. Remember, in the past, a long time ago, Joseph's brothers had betrayed him, as we read in chapter 37, and they sold him into slavery. But Joseph rose to power in Egypt, 
In fact, he became the prime minister of Egypt. He became the one holding the keys to the greatest grain stores in the known world at that time. And so his brothers had come looking for grain. Joseph kept his identity hidden as the brothers came. And we read at the end of chapter 43 that Joseph provided a meal for his brothers. They sat down and Joseph didn't reveal his identity, but he was watching carefully to see what kind of men they had become. In verse 34, at the end of chapter 43, we read that portions were taken to the brothers from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion, the youngest brother's portion, was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Now as we enter chapter 44, we're going to see this test develop to see if these brothers will once again abandon this brother who's being showed favoritism. Will they, out of spite and jealousy, find a way to get rid of Benjamin? Or will they demonstrate that they have changed? So the chapter divides into two scenes. Verses 1 to 17, I'm going to just call it the test. Joseph tests his brothers to see what kind of men they've become. And then verses 18 to 34, I'm going to call this the mediator. Judah speaks in his brother Benjamin's defense to save him from condemnation. So let's look at the test, first of all, in verses 1 to 17. The meal at the end of chapter 43 clearly set up a situation where Benjamin was shown favoritism. Benjamin's extra portions were like Joseph's coat of many colors, set him apart as the favored son. Now Joseph sets up this situation to make it really easy for the brothers to get rid of Benjamin if they want to. In chapter 44, verse 1, we read, it's time for the brothers to go back to their father, Jacob, back to Canaan, with the grain that they have bought. Joseph, we're told, commands his steward to fill the brothers' sacks with grain, put their money back into the sacks. Then in verse 2, he says, and put my own silver cup into the sack of the youngest. The steward did as Joseph commanded. In verse 3, then, our attention turns back to the brothers. As soon as morning is light, they head off, on their donkeys, with their grain, to take the long road back to Canaan. And you can imagine them thinking to themselves, well, that all went really well. Remember, they were going back to see Joseph terrified because the first time they'd visited, Joseph had said, you're just spies. And they had actually taken captive one of their brothers, Simeon. But now they're going back to Canaan. They've got their grain. They've got Benjamin, they've got Simeon. It looks like all's going really well. We're going to get back to Canaan. Thankfully, everyone will be back safe and sound. It was all going so well until Joseph's steward caught up with them. Sent by Joseph, this steward comes and he asks them in verse 4, Why have you repaid my master's kindness with evil? In verse 5, he says, You've done evil in doing this. And it's actually interesting. The Hebrew is quite vague there. You could translate it as just, You've done an evil thing in what you've done to him. You've done an evil thing in what you've done to Joseph. And part of me wonders, are we supposed to actually think back to chapter 37? And was the ultimate evil thing there selling Joseph into the hands of the Midianite traders into slavery? 
but we don't know. In verses 7 to 9, the brothers protest their innocence. They say, look, we brought back the money that had been put back into our sacks the first time. How then could we steal from your master? They're so certain of their innocence, in fact, that they make a vow and say in verse 9, whichever of your servants is found with this cup will die, and the rest of us will all become your slaves. It's like when you're accused, you say, I bet you a million pound I didn't do it, or certainly I hear that sometimes in my household. The steward responds in verse 10, dialing down the rhetoric a bit. He says, look, the one found with it will become the slave of Joseph, my master, but the rest of you shall be innocent or the slave of Joseph's household. Verses 11 to 13, the brothers, they quickly lower their sacks. They open them to demonstrate their innocence. But notice this little heightening of the tension in the narrative as the steward begins with the eldest and makes his way down to the youngest. And as readers, we know what's coming. Verse 12, the cup is indeed found in Benjamin's sack. And in verse 13, you can feel the brothers' frustration. They tear their clothes, we're told, and they head back to the city to see if they can sort this whole thing out. You do have to wonder, I wonder, did any of them for a moment suspect, I wonder, did Benjamin do it? Did any of them shoot an accusing brotherly look Benjamin's way? What are you doing? You can feel their frustration. Accused of spies in their first visit, Simeon ends up in prison, as we said. Things were going really well in this visit, but now something else has happened that makes them have to go back. I, I can sort of imagine what this must have felt like on one level. In fact, I feel like I've walked through it on some levels. When we're getting everyone out for school in the morning, many times we're all in the car, we're on our way, it's all going well, and then someone says, I forgot my guitar, or I forgot my trombone, or I forgot my violin, or I forgot my PE kit. And I metaphorically have torn my clothes in such moments many times and have turned the car around and headed back to get whatever was lost. It's interesting in this narrative, ironically, the last time we read of clothes being torn, do you know who did it? It was Jacob. Whenever he was told that Joseph had been lost and the brothers presented this dipped robe and said, that's your son, and Jacob was the one who tore his robes as he lamented his lost son. Well, now the brothers tear their clothes, and it seems like they're acting a little bit more like their father in this instance. Well, in verse 14, they arrive back to Joseph's house. Joseph is waiting for them. He says, what is this you have done? When he mentions his ability to work divination, it's all part of this cover-up. In verse 16, Judah responds, he stands to speak on behalf of the group, and his initial response consists of three elements. First, he speaks of the brothers' inability to prove their innocence. He says, essentially, we've been caught red-handed. Verse 16, how can we clear ourselves before you? Then in verse 2, he speaks of their guilt. Or in, in number, secondly, he speaks of their guilt in verse 16 also. God has found out the guilt of your servants. And Judah there is not speaking of their guilt in, with respect to the cup because he knows they haven't stolen the cup. He's referring to their guilt in what they did to Joseph originally. He's saying we're being punished by God for the wrong we did. And then third, Judah simply says, our lot should be condemnation to slavery. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he in whose hand the cup has been found. Judas essentially saying, look, there's nothing we can do. We're your slaves. 
But look at how Joseph responds in verse 17. Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now, do you see how Joseph has set this all up? They have the perfect opportunity here to get rid of the favored brother. They can go back and say to their father, the master of the land imprisoned him, and there's nothing we could do. They can get rid of Benjamin just like they got rid of Joseph. And Joseph is watching closely to see what they'll do. Now, there are some that are a bit suspicious of Joseph at this point. Do you think he maybe just wanted him and Benjamin to get away and sort of make a new start together and get rid of all those other brothers? Some suspect that. I'm not so sure. I think this is a perfect setup to see what kind of men these are. But Benjamin is in deep trouble here. He has, though he's been framed, he's been caught red-handed. He's been accused of stealing a cup from one of the most powerful men in Egypt. He's been framed, but he is still in deep trouble. And in many ways, Benjamin here stands as a representative of us. Who are we in this narrative? We're Benjamin. We're condemned. We're in trouble because by nature, we're sinful. Benjamin was framed. He was innocent in this account. But we're in deep trouble by nature, we're told in Scripture, because of our sin. In fact, we come under the condemnation of the most powerful being in the universe, God. So imagine if you're Benjamin. Well, we move into the second scene in the narrative then. After the test has all been set up, in verses 18 down to the end, we see the mediator. Judah speaks in his brother's defense to save him from condemnation. As I said there, imagine how Benjamin must have felt when he heard Joseph's pronouncement. The man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my slave. And you can all go, I think if I was Benjamin there, my color would have drained. Oh no. When I was in school once, I got, I got put in detention once in the Royal School in Armagh, and I was terrified, detained for 40 minutes. I was mostly terrified because I'd have to go home and tell my parents. Um, but Benjamin was being faced with life detention. Then imagine how he must have felt when his elder brother Judah stepped forward to speak in his defense. And the speech that Judah makes in verse 18 down to 34, it's the longest speech in the book of Genesis. And often in narratives in Genesis and in the Old Testament as a whole, it's the speeches that carry the drama. It's the speeches that give us the main theological message of the narrative. It's as if Moses, the author of Genesis, wants us to slow down and take in this speech. This speech from Judah is the turning point in the whole Joseph narrative. As we'll see next time in chapter 45, it's after Judah's mediatorial work that Joseph reveals himself and reconciliation follows. As we look at Judah's speech, I want us just to see three characteristics of his mediatorial work that foreshadow and outline the mediatorial work of great Judah's greater son, Jesus Christ. First, Judah is a submissive mediator. Look at verse 18. 
Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you're like Pharaoh himself. Judah here recognizes as he steps forward to intercede for Benjamin that he is stepping into the presence of one of the most powerful lords of the land. He respectfully draws near, and with submission and humility, he brings his plea. Second, Judah is a compassionate mediator. In verses 19 to 31, Judah makes his appeal to Joseph on the basis of love and compassion. But notice, it is not first out of love for Benjamin that he makes his plea. Though that's there, I believe. Judah's appeal for Benjamin's release is based on his love for the father. His father will be most grieved if his son is not reconciled. And on that basis, Judah makes his plea. Fourteen times in his speech, he mentions his father. Let me just give you a sample and carry the narrative forward. Verse 19, as Judah unpacks what's going on before Joseph, he says, My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. He continues, his father loves him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Verse 24, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said we cannot go down if our youngest brother goes with us. Verse 27, then your servant, my father, said to us, You know my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, harm happens him. You'll bring down my gray hairs and my hairs in evil to shield. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy's not with us, he'll die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to shield. Verse 34, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father, my father, my father, my father. The mediator out of love for the Father speaks in defense of the condemned one. Where back in chapter 37, it was Judah who suggested that Joseph, the the beloved son, would be sold without caring for the Father. The Father's heart was broken, and Judah didn't seem to care. And for, what, 20 years he's kept it concealed from his father? Now Judah is a changed man. His repentance seems to be demonstrated in his love for the Father and in his changed attitude towards the beloved Son. So Judah is a compassionate mediator, but notice his love, his compassion. It's it's a love for the Father. And the Father who will be broken if his estranged son is not reconciled with him. Third, we see that Judah's mediatorial work is self-sacrificing. He's a self-sacrificing mediator. In verse 32, Judah says to the powerful Lord that he doesn't even know is Joseph, for your servant 
became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And then listen really carefully to the final words that mark the pivot around which the whole narrative turns. Verse 33, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Now think of all Judah is willing to give up here. If Joseph agrees to his request, Judah will never see his father again. He'll never see his home again. He's offering here to lay down his life, his rights, his own family, his own sons, Perez and Zerah, so that Benjamin can go free. This is actually the first instance of human substitution for another in the Bible. Out of love for the father, the mediator, Judah, is willing to take the condemned one's place, to take his punishment so that the condemned one could go free. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? Now see the beautiful gospel outline in even that statement. How can I go back to the father if my bride is not with me, Jesus would say. Of course, the outline of the mediatorial work of Jesus is not perfect in this Old Testament narrative. We know that Judah is a sinner in the midst of being transformed by God's grace. Benjamin is innocent in the narrative with respect to the cup the reader knows. But I think that actually serves to make the glory of Christ's mediatorial work, it makes it shine all the more brightly because Jesus is the innocent mediator who is willing to take the place of the guilty condemned sinner. Judah in the narrative is simply beginning to demonstrate the ideals of a true king. You see, from his line would come the royal king. From his line ultimately would come the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis 49, verse 9 and following, when Jacob is blessing his sons, he says of Judah, Judah is a lion's cub. Who dares rouse him? And then he gives this word of prophecy. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So there's this word as Jacob blesses Judah. He's saying that, that from Judah's line, there will come one who will have a ruler's scepter, and tribute will be brought to him, and the obedience of all peoples will come to this one from Judah's line. And we know that from this line came a son of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Revelation chapter five, we have this powerful scene where the apostle John looks out almost hopelessly on history, wondering is there anyone who can step in and accomplish God's redemptive purposes in the world? 
He weeps because it seems in his vision and revelation that there's no one who can overcome the problems of sin and death and fallenness. No one can accomplish redemption, it seems, or step into the breach to save humanity. And then this huge angelic announcement is made. As John weeps, he's told to weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. And as we'll see in our morning studying Revelation, that basically says, here's the one who can unfurl all of God's redemptive purposes throughout history, Jesus Christ. But isn't that language so intentional and so deliciously wonderful? You're told in Genesis 49, Judah's a lion's cub. Who dares rouse him? And then we're, spoken, we're, we're told of one coming from Judah's line who's going to be a king and who's going to reign and all the obedience of the peoples will be towards that king. And then, way at the other side of the Bible, this angelic announcement, the lion that we've been waiting for from Judah, he's here. He can redeem humanity. He can stand in the gap. He can accomplish all of God's redemptive purposes, so there is hope. And then what does John look to and see when he's told of this lion? What does he see in his vision? A slain lamb. Another Judah who would stand in the place of sinners, be willing to bear their punishment so that they could be set free and reconciled to the Father. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's the gospel in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New, and it tells us so much and gives us so many reasons for why we should appreciate the greater mediatorial ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your humble, submissive mediator, submissive to the Father's will. In Gethsemane, he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He willingly steps forward into the gap and comes as our mediator. He is if you're a Christian, you're a compassionate mediator. Out of love for the Father, he takes our place and bears our wrong. And he is your self-sacrificing mediator. He stands in our place as sinners, bears our punishment so that we could go free and be restored to the Father. Do you not feel your love for your mediator rise as you ponder these things? Let's just close with a simple word of application. Sometimes we can feel unloved and uncared for in the world. Sometimes we can feel lonely and we can struggle with assurance. At such times, here's a truth we can preach to ourselves. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. We have one who intercedes for us. We have one who cares for us, who humbly comes to us and lovingly intercedes for us. He's our defense lawyer, and he's never lost a case for his own. 
He will make sure that we are held fast and that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God because of Jesus. Do you remember that scene in John's Gospel, chapter 8, where the woman is thrown at Jesus' feet who has been caught in adultery? That famous scene where Jesus writes in the dust. And what does he say? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. I've often reflected on that narrative and thought, who's the only person who could have rightly thrown a stone at that woman? Jesus. Let him who's without sin cast the first stone. But what does Jesus do? He speaks in her defense. He defends her. And in Romans chapter 8, we have this powerful passage where the Apostle Paul is rejoicing in the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. And he says, what shall separate us from the love of God? And then he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Jesus Christ, in a sense, think again, he's the one who can justly condemn us. But what is he doing? He is the one who is interceding for us. Jesus Christ, him who died, he could justly condemn us like he could have justly condemned that woman. But what do we find Jesus do? Speaking for us, interceding for us, defending us out of love for the Father. He pleads his own blood, his own death. And he says, my death shields this one. And if you're a Christian... Jesus' intercessory work on your behalf, it goes on even now. It's not as if he was just your mediator through his death and resurrection, then he went to the right hand of the Father and that was it, it was kind of accomplished. No, his mediatorial work is ongoing. Jesus, along with the Holy Spirit, they intercede for the church. It's powerful, it's wonderful. You have won who speaks for you, who pleads for you his own death, his own merit. And if Satan would condemn you, and if Satan would go to the Father and say, look at their life, look at their lethargy, look at their half-heartedness, look at their sin, Jesus says, silence. This one is mine. My righteousness is their righteousness. I take their guilt and condemnation. I have paid their debt. They're free. My righteous ones. So the question, I think, has to be, do you know this mediator yourself? I've prefaced every one of those statements about Christ being our submissive mediator, our compassionate mediator, our self-sacrificing mediator, with if you're a Christian. But if you're not a Christian, you do not have one who will speak on your defense. You will have to meet the Father in your sin and you will be condemned to hell. But if you will receive Christ by faith, you will have his death and resurrection. You will have him pleading for you on behalf of his accomplishments so that you will never be condemned. You will be saved because Jesus never loses any one of his own. A second question we could ask then is, if you're already a Christian and you do know Jesus, do you appreciate him? It is so easy to just take grace for granted. 
from the bottom of your heart this evening, I would encourage you just to say thank you again to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Judah's mediatorial work in this passage is simply an outline of the greater than Judah who would come and speak on our behalf. If anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Do you know him? Do you appreciate him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for uh, the beautiful outlines of the gospel we see in the book of Genesis. Thank you, Father, that you graciously sent your Son into this world to be our mediator. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly obeyed the Father and you came out of love for your Father to secure your people the people whom the Father had given to you, Lord Jesus, you would do all that was needed out of love for the Father to bring reconciliation between the lost ones and the Father. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly and lovingly loved us. It wasn't just love for the Father, but you loved us as well, and you gave yourself for us as our self-sacrificing mediator so that we could be free. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. So Lord, I pray that wherever we're at in our walk with you this evening, or if we don't know you, pray that even now we would just cry out, Lord Jesus, come and be my mediator. Or Father, through the power of your Spirit, help me to appreciate on a new level that mediating work of Jesus, that when I was condemned and without hope, he stepped forward, he took my place, he bore my wrong so that I could be reconciled to the Father. We thank you, Father, for the glory and beauty of the gospel and the hope that we have in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to rejoice in Christ alone, the one in whom our hope is found. Let's stand together and sing.
Amen.